Hello, listeners. This is William Lee, and I'm introducing this slightly different episode of Filmed in Canada. In the early days of planning this podcast, we recorded a conversation about the werewolf movie Ginger Snaps. In essence, it was a practice recording, so it's a little shorter, and the audio quality isn't the smoothest in places. Still, we think it was a movie worth talking about. And following that conversation, you'll hear some leftover thoughts from Alexander and me about the movies we discussed in the first three episodes. So thanks for listening, and we welcome your comments. My proposition for the name is Lights Canada Action. Okay. Uh, Podcast about Canadian movies. All of that is in the title. Yeah. Okay. That's. <laughs> you would have to. Cl- you would. An adventure through time, exploring <laughs> the cinema of Canada. I guess we should introduce ourselves. My name's Alexander, and I'm William. We just watched Ginger Snaps, the ni- the two thousand teenage werewolf uh, movie. That was my first time watching it, and uh, as it was it also your first time watching it? Yeah, I've never seen it. Okay. Did you know anything about it going into it? Was there any sort of reputation for this movie that you knew of? I definitely understood it in the context of Canadian horror films. It's been talked about in that context. I uh, didn't really know of it other than that. I mean, I haven't heard any Americans speak of it, so that's... A plus on our side. Mm-hmm. You feel it's sort of undiscovered by American audiences? That could be the case, but also just that it, I've always heard it in, spoken about in the context of, well, this is a really good Canadian movie. Oh, okay. I had heard of it in terms of like an indie horror movie, and uh, I think maybe that's how I heard of it first. Um, and I heard, um, I think I realized not too long after that, but I realized it was a Canadian movie. And then um, I think it had some it had two sequels made pretty soon after. Is that right? That could be correct. Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, there's Ginger Snaps two, or there's there's like Ginger Ginger Unleashed or something of that sort. There's I think there's two sequels. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, that might be in a follow up conversation. We'll have to uh, research that. Here's a quick synopsis of Ginger Snaps, which premiered in 2000 and officially theatrically released in 2001. It was directed by John Fawcett and written by Karen Walton and John Fawcett. The story concerns two teenage sisters who are into goth fashion and are somewhat outsiders at their high school. The older sister is Ginger, played by Catherine Isabel, and the younger sister Bridget is played by Emily Perkins. One night, Ginger is attacked in the woods and bitten by a strange creature. Soon after, Ginger begins to undergo some sort of transformation. She's dressing more provocatively, taking an interest in boys, physically stronger, and growing a tail. Mimi Rogers plays the girl's mother, but she is kept in the dark because of their strained relationship, and surely she wouldn't understand what is happening to Ginger, who's discreetly dealing with bloody messes in the bathroom. With the help of a pot dealer named Sam, Bridget tries to find a cure for the strange curse that has taken over her sister. Did you like it? Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I, well, I, well, actually, one thing that kind of took away from watching it was the format that we, the DVD we had, wasn't in, wasn't a great representation of the movie. It was 
it was um, I don't know what do you, whatever you call it not letterbox the opposite of letterbox right it was panned and scanned it could it? be yeah well panned and scan usually means like they they deliberately like move the frame yeah, back right, and forth right, right. to cover a widescreen frame right. but um, so this uh, according to IMDb this was this was presented uh, 1.85 to one but the DVD that we had. Uh, the picture was clearly four by three and uh, non-anamorphic, so it was uh, yeah, I, it was not a true presentation of the movie. We think, yeah. right? So separate from that experience of watching it, I I definitely enjoyed the subdued nature of it. Almost there was uh, there wasn't an emphasis on the gore and the effects. I, I think, and not not in a s not in the sense of lacking a budget or anything like that. I just feel like... Um, you felt it was restrained? Or yeah, or just that it wasn't, it, like, it wasn't trying to shock you. It wasn't trying to spew a bunch of blood in your face or whatever. Like, it was it was just very uh, comfortable with these characters and the transformations that they were going through mm -hmm. as a result of this mm -hmm. werewolf bite. I think that is um, cleverly set up by, uh, the, by the way that... Um, the film is made in the in the very opening in the opening moments. You get a lot of gore, and uh, and I think it's not clear what sort of attitude you're supposed to process it with uh, at first, and then it, then you quickly discover that it is staged gore because the characters, uh, the two girls, are are actually um, um, they're kind of death obsessed, and so they're um, they're creating scenes. They're making gore and making death photos and stuff, and so there's a montage of that uh, at the over the opening under the opening credits, and I think it I think it lets you know that there is fakery, and I think it's it's it kind of lets you off the hook in term in terms of like the stakes. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but even before that, there's also they show uh, something has maimed and and killed this dog, and even the even the presentation of that like it just the, the camera doesn't doesn't focus on it and it doesn't cut to it it sort of pans down to it and in that way just that that presentation of the violence I found to, to be consistent throughout and again it just felt it, it came from a level of comfort with with the characters and just wanting to explore what would happen if you became this uncontrollably violent creature mm -hmm. rather than trying to shock the audience with mm -hmm. the effects of, of that violence. I think the the movie's comfort level with gore. I think that is in line with this theme about uh, about girls um, and their menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think women have a, s a certain level of comfort with with their body functions, with blood. Uh, mm -hmm. Which I would I think it's safe to say that men are a little bit queasy about it, and uh, that that women have to live with that. Uh, I think that comes across in in the movie. Uh, the comfort level with gore, I think the comfort level with uh, what your body does with blood, I think that is is in line with that theme. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I did a little bit of um, internet research, uh, five minutes of researching, and <laughs> found out that the uh, the makers of the movie had some trouble early on because uh, they were they were planning to shoot it. They're planning to shoot in uh, 1999, and in April, uh, the Columbine High School shooting happened. Right. And uh, and then days after that, there was a there was a shooting in Tabor, Alberta, at a high school. I didn't know that. And then there was a I think I think the Toronto Star had us publish the story, saying Telefilm is funding a teenage slasher movie, 
Um, so there was a bit of controversy over whether uh, this was something that taxpayers should be funding, uh, whether this was uh, like something uh, this, was, this was appropriate in terms of uh, art that represents Canada. Right. Yeah. Did you know about that history behind? It? Not at all. Yeah. 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 But that definitely, I guess, in in general terms, kind of brings up one of the one of the aspects of, of kind of why we're doing this podcast in the sense of uh, trying to understand the Canadian film industry and and what is culturally relevant to Canadians and and how that gets represented in in films that are made for and by Canadians mm -hmm. and. One of the elements there being Telephone Canada being uh, an entity that is government funded and provides money for films. I, I, I'm really just talking in very general terms here because I'm I'm still in the process of discovering a lot of these things as well, which again is kind of why I, I was interested in in joining you on the podcast. I guess it sets up an interesting dynamic because it it, it becomes a situation where the public could theoretically dictate with their tax dollars to say whether or not something can or cannot be made. I don't I don't know that there have been instances of that happening, but I don't really think it's it's warranted. For like a public outcry to say don't give money to this project. Or even yeah. or even the Toronto Star publishing it because I mean ultimately if I don't know if it's a if it's a lottery or or you know if it's a if it's a bidding process how mm -hmm. these films get their money if at the end of the day they get the money there can't be any censorship on, on what they do. Yeah, is is Canada's support of its own homegrown film industry, does that come with strings attached or not? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's something worth exploring. I don't really know a whole lot about the funding process for Canadian films either, um, yeah. so I think that is something we'll discover in this podcast, hopefully, and maybe people will be enlightened by it. The, uh, the other thing I read was that in the wake of the controversy and in the wake of those shootings, um, that a lot of... Canadian talent agencies, if I read it correctly, uh, Canadian talent agencies were reluctant to send their people um, to the casting. Whereas, um, and, and so they um, they had a lot of, they had LA casting company working as well, and they had no problem finding people who wanted to be in a movie, because that's just the industry they want to be, people want to be working in movies, yeah. and I guess the daily uh, daily events, uh, things that happen in the news, are just things that happen in the news, and life goes on, people have to make entertainment. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, that the dichotomy of that kind of reaction to it, like, do we do we actually be involved with something like this if we think we object to it or not? Um, that's also interesting between uh, the U.S. and Canadian industry. And I would say that's almost reflective of of Canadians in in general, just sort of wanting to shy away from from controversy and a reluctance to to engage with that is is something that I think we experience as a culture but do, do you know if there were any rewrites i don't know I don't yeah because there there i guess there was you know maybe spoiler alert there were a few scenes that took place in a high school mm -hmm. that involved some violence yeah so i wonder if there was more going on there if there was more of like a rampage through the school possibly um, yeah or if that know. was all just yeah there are shades of it where uh, the movie has shades of carrie um in terms of uh, women, girls becoming women, the bullying aspect, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, um, but I, I don't think it. Um, the version that we saw, anyway, um, I don't think it was trying to mimic that pattern. So I, I'm not sure if the, if that would have been in an original draft or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Karen Walton, the uh, the co-screenwriter 
um, was brought onto the project by director John Fawcett. And reportedly she was reluctant to be involved because she thought women were uh, poorly presented, poorly represented in horror movies. But, um, but John Fawcett's um, assurance that it was, it was not the intention of this movie uh, kept her, um, kept her uh, involved. So a woman is uh, credited for uh, writing the script. Uh, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, uh, just in, in the, the writing and the storytelling. Yeah, I actually wasn't aware of that. Um, I didn't really do any research <laughs> in preparation here, but maybe that'll be, I feel like that'll probably be an ongoing theme. That we just have no prep. Well, no, just that you would be more prepared than me <laughs> in general. I'm going to fire questions and catch people off guard to make it sound like I've done prep, but it's uh, stuff I read off the back of the uh, DVD cover mostly. Yeah, which is more than I did. But I think it it certainly helps to have that perspective in terms of writing something that's very much about the, the development of womanhood. I was reading an article today of uh, written by a trans journalist who had who was reflecting on the recent proliferation of trans characters and trans stories in the media with or sorry in in film and television with um, there's that one with Jeffrey Tambor there's uh, Orange is the New Black and a lot of these these shows and movies that are that are sort of hitting the popular culture but they're not being written by trans people and she was arguing very strongly that that should never be the case and that there should always be that perspective brought into it. I think it, in a more general sense, if it's just a, a man writing a female character, you know, Joss Whedon writing Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like there's not really that much of a need for it. But this story is very much about women and about yeah. something that only women experience, so it's and and so I feel like it it really does benefit from from having a female. Screen and the bond between sisters, I think that is um, something very um, very different from um, the male experience too. Yeah, um, their relationship with their mother, I think, is something um, that we could also explore. Um, just on the one more thing about the writing. Um, uh, did you feel that the portrayal of these teen girls was um, realistic? Um, these two goth girls. I'll throw the question back at you because it seems like you have something to say about it. Okay, I, I, I thought it would. I thought it approached um, a level of realism in terms of like they seem not not super articulate, but they seem like confident in the way that they were talking uh, among their peers and with each other. Yeah. And they said fuck a lot, yeah. which I was surprised because I don't. I don't think a lot of Canadian movies are very comfortable with that sort of naturalistic dialogue of just right. people saying fuck all the time. That's and actually that, w that was one of those things that I was highlighting in my head as like this is definitely a Canadian thing because even in even in American movies it, with profanity it's it's used more um, in kind of a, an, an aggressive way against another person like fuck you or something like that whereas this is more in the context of and I guess we're, we're going to be an explicit podcast, but um, the, it, the otherwise, the other side of the spectrum, the, it, it, like you say, it's very natural the way they use it, and it's more so as just as an exclamation, like, wow, we're fucked, like, or mm -hmm. fuck. And I, I don't know, I feel like, I, at least I talk like that a lot, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of people I know do, and I feel like it is I think a, lot a of more Canadian thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
but that a woman was comfortable writing a script that was just filled with profanity. Uh, yeah. Whether it is whether it was because they're teens and they're kind of outsider teens, uh, or whether she just like felt that's how people talk in society, yeah. uh, I think is um, um, ju it just made it feel more natural, if, if that's the right word for it. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of I think a lot of Canadian productions are worried that they're um, that they're restricting their audiences because um, I think to make money back on Canadian movies. I don't know if this. I don't know if that is a concern of Canadian filmmakers that they need to make money from their films. But but the idea that that they're making a film that is only for one audience and uh, it won't have the possibility of, of of crossing over demographics and stuff that seems to be a thing in Canadian movies um, that that I notice like they they want to be for everyone and this one is not for everyone this one is for uh, for teens and especially um, girls who feel that they're outsiders and it's for horror fans it's not it's not something that you would um, you would program necessarily to celebrate uh, the Canadian film industry mm -hmm. but I think it's a really good example of what can come out of the Canadian film industry sure yeah. did you have anything else to say yeah, yeah, so uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and a very common thing that they do is introduce like a segment that may or may not ever become an actual segment. Okay. So our ca our segment is called "What Makes It Canadian." Okay. What makes this movie Canadian? And um, what happens? Do we like volley back and forth to see who has the most examples, and then? Yeah, there will be a point system. Okay. Yeah. All right. What makes it Canadian? Like I said, the the profanity, that's one point for me. Sure. Okay. The uh, the actor Peter Callahan, uh, who played, um, it, it was unclear whether he was a teacher or the high school counselor. He was the counselor. Okay. I don't know why he was in that er that opening scene where he's watching their art project though. That that seemed a bit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, two points. That one, a guy who appears on regular Canadian TV is in the movie, yeah. um, is I think a point uh, makes it recognizably Canadian. And two, that he, that his character seems to show up in more scenes than he's needed. I, that that economy of actors is yeah. a very Canadian thing. <laughs> okay, uh, I just thought of this one. The janitor is not black. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, <laughs> he's Asian, <laughs> probably Japanese. I think I don't know. Uh, they play hockey or a form of hockey. Okay, that's two points for each of us. Um, the accents were definitely Canadian. You could totally tell. If you say so. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. I totally okay. picked up on okay. it, especially right. with the two girls. Great. Um, the monster was kind of cheap looking. <laughs> Is that Canadian? No. Okay. <laughs> no, you lose on that one. Right. Oh, so we get, to, we get to veto each other or we get to yeah. strike each other? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. That doesn't count. Because, sure. like, like uh, I mean, Canadians generally make shitty movies, sure. so that's probably what you're getting at. But okay, that's fine. At the same time... Yeah. Anyone can make a crappy okay. feature creature effect. Great. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is I, you might veto this one, but it doesn't it doesn't specify location. I like was actually going to say that. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, it it wants to be generic city or generic small town. Or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And and again, I feel like that's something that in order to sell to a non-Canadian, well, specifically an American audience, not being specific about the location yeah. helps in that way. Yeah. Um, there was no licensed music that was recognizable. Okay. Again, is that specific? <laughs> 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 but even even like a cheap. 
indie movie though, uh, they might buy one song that you that you've heard on like top forty radio, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, maybe that one doesn't count. Yeah, uh, maybe I just listen to the wrong radio stations. Yeah. Could be right. Yeah. Well, w- w- so here's here's another thing is like w- these what makes a Canadian things. Like I'd like to see if they kind of recur. And even even something like the gore in the movie, how it's how it's portrayed, mm-hmm. I feel like that's something that Cronenberg explores as well. So I think I, I, I I'm interested in seeing what kinds of these these themes or or just motifs or whatever you want to call them, how much they reappear in mm-hmm. in the other Canadian films that we watch. Okay. So how many maple leaves do you give it? I'll give it three maple leaves. Okay. Is it maple leaves or maple leaves? 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 It's leaves. Yeah, because yeah. it's like the leaves, yeah. Leaves, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the leaves. Leaves. Yeah. Okay, three out of... Um, I will give it a seven rating. So, so actually, I'll seven. give it four out of seven leaves, yeah. Four out of seven leaves. Yeah. Leaves. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> great. We will have to compare that against the other movies we talk about yeah. in the what, uh, upcoming podcast. How, how about you? What's your, what's your out of seven? How many leaves? <laughs> I would give it uh, a solid... Um, Three and a half leaves. Okay. <laughs> cool. Cool. Thank you for talking with me about ginger snaps. And we will hopefully talk about more. Thank you. Last time we recorded, uh, I started rambling about Paul Thomas Anderson, and you correctly cut me off because it wasn't relevant, but. That got me thinking about his movies again, and so I went back and watched Inherit Vice and There Will Be Blood, and um, maybe the first 20 minutes of Punch Drunk Love, I didn't end up finishing it, but um, yeah, I just I just really couldn't get those movies out of my mind after, that dis- after our discussion, and then watching them again, um, I don't know, I had a different experience with There Will Be Blood, it wasn't quite as immersive as as previous viewings i guess more so i think just because i've seen it so many times that i was just kind of looking more at the background and kind of picking apart the visuals more so than just being absorbed by the by the music and the and the whole scope of it um so just in general i'm i'm interested just because we've had kind of passing discussions about your I don't know if you would say distaste or your lack of interest in in the majority of his films. Uh, just interested in maybe chatting about that for a few minutes. Sometimes it's hard for me to articulate um, why uh, I I don't really take to his movies just in terms of like his overall work. But if I have watched if I watch an individual movie, there'll be something that jumps out at me that annoys me enough to say like you know why is it why is it always uh, that I. I just can't come around to his movies, right? Um, but I think he's—I uh, think he's an exciting filmmaker. So watching his movies, I'm not bored watching his movies. Right. It's just there's there's something about it that leaves me um, um, just a bit unsatisfied. I, I think I think he's got a lot going on in his movies that I think you could appreciate them as him as him as a filmmaker riffing on ideas. And I, I guess for me, because I can't find a way to, to sum up what that statement is, sometimes uh, it leaves me a little bit unsatisfied. Yeah, so that, and that's actually kind of what I was running through my mind, maybe, maybe because we had discussed your, your inability to, to, to coalesce the ideas in the movies. And I think for me, what really sticks out 
isn't so much the ideas, but the emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I connect with his, with his work specifically. I mean, you can think about the, the topics of, of his last three films. You've got There Will Be Blood, which is about, you know, oil prospecting in the early 20th century. The Master being about the birth of a cult of Scientology and Inherent Vice being kind of about the the death of the counterculture movement in the 70s or, or the early 70s. They're all very weighted in these large historical moments in America, but I don't really think that he's interested in the history at all. He's not, and, and, and that's where I think maybe maybe it can be difficult to grasp on to the ideas because he's he really ends up focusing in on just the emotional arc of the characters that he builds and all of all of the other philosophy and and everything else that that might be discussed and it, and it might be there isn't necessarily the focal point and it, and it becomes much a much more enigmatic experience of trying to get to the souls of these very tortured and troubled individuals sociopathic individuals i would even say i, I think i think a lot of his movies there's there's the feeling that uh, people really um remember but i would challenge maybe people who who enjoy his movies to talk about what the message of the movies is what uh what you what you learn from the characters or that um, story being told i think those things are less resonant than just the uh, than the atmosphere and the feeling and the uh, the pace and emotion of his movies. So that it makes sense that I think you respond to uh, to what's there. I'm di- I'm distracted by what I think isn't there. Right. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there were a couple other things that I that I rewatched. Um, You're next. I, I watched that again. Hmm. I found myself still surprised by a lot of it. Like I had forgotten a lot of the gorier elements of, of what goes on in that story. And even just some of the jump scares still like, like just the filmmaking in it is, is really top notch. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you fall into it just the same. And, um, and the score is really great too. And it just, everything about that movie is top notch. I agree. That it's a solid thriller. I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hadn't seen it since, uh, we actually saw it in theaters there mm-hmm. a couple of years back when it, came and went in like a week which was very disappointing obviously because it's just an awesome horror movie and more people should see it but um i'm surprised sometimes when i when i see movies like that which i feel so strongly about like here's a discovery and i want people to see it (laughs) the um maybe it's just the people that i hang out with or the people i recommend movies to if i if I pitch a movie that way to them, um, they're almost certain not to see it. Maybe I'm overselling it. I guess maybe I'm. I'm when I say this is something that is um, sort of out of the mainstream. It is something that is surprising. It is. Um, it's something that I was really surprised how good it was. I, I wonder if they feel like it means it's homework or it's some artsy movie or something. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't have a lot of success recommending movies to people either. <laughs> actually I, like a couple of people at work I can like I know that you know they'll like something like Blue Ruin from last year mm-hmm. or like just like something that is very concise in what it is mm-hmm. and you know someone can watch it and if if they like a thriller or they like whatever you can just say hey watch this and mm-hmm. you know they'll like it but yeah your next does kind of blend 
different genres and and people i would say most people aren't very keen to watch like a home invasion thriller so to speak but yeah. it turns into something so much different that yeah you you, you could almost if you if you if you disengage with the movie before that switch happens before the um the character starts to fight back i forget her name but um before she starts to fight back like if you've already if you've already lost the movie then that 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 doesn't that's not a surprising twist or it's not an interesting development yeah um also rewatched hot fuzz which is that's excellent yeah yeah i've uh, i can um i don't remember the last time that i i watched it all the way through but it's it's a disc that i can i can put in and and watch like 15 minutes and it'll be 15 minutes of hilarity that yeah. i just i'm just so glad i watched it for 15 minutes yeah um so actually related to hot fuzz i wanted to bring up something related to related to the i declare war episode okay. yes um because i was talking about how it wasn't so much that i didn't like the movie it just wasn't the version of the movie that i wanted to see yeah and i think i sent you the 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 clips from spaced you did yeah, yeah so uh spaced is edgar wright and simon pegg's show yeah. and well I, I i don't remember her name but i i would want to give credit to um to the woman that wrote and acted on that show as well jessica hines so she was she was one of the writers on the show as well. Mm-hmm. So there's there's two clips in Spaced that are basically what I wanted I Declare War to be. One of them, they're like running away from these hooligans that are trying to track them down and they get they get sort of cornered in this alleyway and so they decide they're gonna shoot their way out and they pull like they just like fake pull out guns with their hands and they just get into this fake shootout and like there's real sound effects and everything, but they're just like like guys like you know, like using his hand to like make it look like blood spraying out of his neck and it's just the most absurd farcical shootout and like that's what i was kind of hoping for from the, from from this movie of a bunch of kids getting into a forest and and shooting up their friends like like mm. that's what i would expect of a bunch of kids they would just be like oh you got me like no and like make it into this really over the top war movie type thing and then the other clip they're they're playing paintball and um they're in this you know kind of sergio leone standoff and simon pikes goes to shoot him and his paintball gun has run out of uh nitrous or is it nitrous whatever gas they use co2 i think it's co2 so the guy is going to shoot him and nick frost like runs and like takes the bullet for simon Pegg. and there's this like exaggerated death scene where nick frost is like spewing up red paintball blood (laughs) (laughs) or sorry yellow paintball blood which is even more Uh hilarious those two clips are what i wanted in a 90 minute version of i declare war but that's a comedy version. That. But that, but that uh, that's your comedy version of that movie is is different from what we got. Yeah, yeah. that's so. right. but that's just the movie I wanted to see. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Edgar Wright's awesome. Yes. Uh, when we were talking about uh, take this waltz, I was ta- I was trying to uh, describe how the um, the neighbor character is built up as this fantasy of uh, of the uh, of the Michelle Williams character. Right. Yeah, and I think. Um, yeah, that I, I didn't like that he was uh, a rickshaw driver, and you were, th- and you said, "Well, what's the big deal that he's a rickshaw driver?" Um, and and I was saying, "Well, he's a rickshaw driver and he's a painter," and so I think I wasn't finding uh, the right way to articulate it. I was saying like he's built up as uh, I, I think I use words this uh, unattainable male, and I think I think that probably was not what I want, what I meant to say. 
I think I meant to say he's he's built up as sort of like a male bimbo, okay. bimbo, right? Yeah. Like, he's just he's like that specimen of a guy who's uh, very sensitive because he's a he's an artist, but he's very handy with his uh, he's very brawny and handy. And I just thought like it that sort of fantasy creation that you get out of uh, like a romance novel or something. That's what I was trying to say in terms of like I I just I didn't know where it stood the, the movie where it stood in terms of is it going to be real or is it going to be a fantasy. So. Right. That's all. That's all I wanted to say from the previous episode. Okay. Yeah. And that's a good enough place to end this episode. Our website from where you can listen to or download our episodes is filmedincanada.net. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your preferred podcatcher. Thank you, and we'll have another episode for you soon.